Morning. So immediately following this service, uh, there is a rehearsal for the kids' choir that'll be part of the Christmas program. So if you're trying to figure out when rehearsal is and you came and thought it was between but kids' stuff was going on, it's immediately following this service. We'll let you know when it's over because it remains to be seen, right? So uh, how are you this morning? Still morning? <laughs> Great. That person is awesome. Hey, uh, I had this uh, enlightening conversation with my wife on Friday night. Uh, one of the rhythms of our week is I usually uh, walk through my sermon with her, partly as a way of um, finding out if I'm going to say something stupid, because she would be the one person who would tell me, yeah, you probably shouldn't say that. So there's a little bit of a, a counsel, a protection that goes on there, and she also has great insight as to uh, what I'm trying to say and what's not clear. So it's just part of our rhythm. So it was Friday night, and she said, it, as I got through it, she said, you know, you use the word awesome and amazing a lot. And I, and I said, no, I don't, because that's what you say when your wife tells you something, right? You immediately become defensive. Um, it turned out to be this amazing and awesome conversation. I'm just kidding. Um, so I went back through the sermon on Saturday morning as I you know, did the final edit, and I took out all the words amazing and awesome. So the sermon I have for you this morning is four minutes long. So if you want to clap, if you're brave enough, you can. Four minutes, finally. Been waiting for a four-minute sermon for a long time, haven't you? Hey, and I'm going to do my best not to use awesome or amazing um, unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, I'm excited about what God has given me to share today. Uh, we're going to unpack a particular verse that God has used in my own life uh, really as an encouragement. Um, it's a verse that I go back to often. It's a verse that, that I lean into at times when I'm feeling like, man, I'm not sure I can do what God has called me to do. It's a very... Uh, it's a personal verse. It's just, you know, how we all have particular places we go in Scripture. We keep going back to. This is one of those verses for me. It's also a verse that I give to people often as they sit in my office and use as a, a word of encouragement to them. It's just, a, it's a powerful, powerful passage. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at it a little bit differently. Because this is a passage that you're probably all fairly familiar with, but you've probably uh, used the passage similar to me as a personal application. But today we're going to take this verse and we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for us as a church? And so before I get to the passage, before I teach in the passage, I, I want to just kind of share with you a, a principle or a rule of life, if you will, that we all need to hold on to in order for today's sermon to make sense. And, and the rule of life or the principle is that what applies to individuals applies to organizations. What applies to the individual applies to the church, applies to groups of people. Oftentimes, you can be reading a passage that's written for an individual person, and you can realize it has application to my family unit. So there's this a way that we can take application and we can put it in different areas, both individually and corporately. I began to actually see this went back in my business days, in my business career, that, that in order for a person to be uh, uh, successful and have significant impact, they need to have some kind of focus and, and be, be determined to do something. Well, the same is true for a business, right? For a, a business to really have an impact, they have to have some semblance of focus and, and determination in what they're trying to do. They have to have a sense of direction, just like individuals need to have some sense of direction. There is a principle in Scripture that says you reap what you sow. 
right? That's a, a passage that we can apply to our individual lives, but it's also a passage that applies to families. It's a passage that applies to churches. It's actually, a, if you think about it, it's a passage that applies to governments, to, to countries, right? That, that they reap what they're sowing. In time, God is going to bring about what God is going to bring about. There's this principle that applies both ways. So the, the same is true. So if we look at a passage of scripture that applies to individuals, we can say, well, this also applies to us as a group. Well, you could also read passages and, and stories in Scripture that are written for a group of people, and you can begin to say, well, how does this apply to me personally? So a perfect example is this. If you read the story of the Exodus, right, the, the story of the Israelites, and I don't know about you, but when I read that story, I think to myself, how could they be so dull? How could they be so slow to believe? I mean, you think about the miracles, right? Like, like first of all, there was all those plagues, which are pretty darn big time miracles, right? And then there's that, that parting of a Red Sea and water coming out of a rock. And I mean, miracle after miracle. And they, you know, they, for goodness sakes, they follow a pillar of fire around, right? And there's all these visible signs of God, yet they're slow to believe. They're slow to trust in God. And I can read that and I can think, you know, oh, this is a great story about a group of people. But if I'm really honest with myself, God says, you know, you're just like the Israelites. I've done all these amazing things in your life and you're still slow to believe. As a matter of fact, the whole purpose of the story is that, is that God was trying to teach this group of people how to depend on him in difficult seasons so that when they got to the land of plenty, they would still depend on him. And if you really read the story, you find out they didn't learn to depend on him in want, so they didn't depend on him in plenty and that plenty. And, and that's our story as well, right? So we're going to take up an offering at the end of the service. And part of, part of that whole opportunity is God's going to say, do you trust me? Do you trust me with the stuff that I've given you? Are you, are you trusting that I'm pro your provider? So part of what we go through in life is, is similar. It's a story about a group of people that has personal application. So I think you get the, the concept that I'm that I'm talking about, but I want to hold on to that rule of life, if you will, as we look at the passage today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles under your seat, it's page 827. Again, I want to encourage you, bring what you use at home to study, to church, take notes. If, it's a, if you use a reader at home, then use a reader at church. If you use an actual Bible, I, I, I would encourage you to bring that Bible with you to church, have it open, and, and be taking your notes either in the Bible or on the back of the bulletin we give you a place. But remember, if you write things down, you're going to remember more of what's being taught. So Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 10. And what I want us to do is we unpack this verse, and we'll, it'll be very natural for us to make personal application, and I'll do that. But I want us to keep asking the question, what does this mean for us as a church? What does this mean for Grace Community Church? Like I said, for many years, I have used this verse to counsel people, to counsel myself, if you will. Um, but I've only in recent times like thought about this verse applies to us as a church. This verse applies to Eagle Children's Charities. This verse applies to, to, to Providence House. We're going to hear about a little later. This, this applies to Vantage Point 3, an organization I serve on the board of. Like, like this, there is a corporate application that goes along with this verse. So Ephesians 2.10 says these words. It says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that we get the word of God. Thank you that we live in a time where, where we have this ability to read. Literacy is, is a part of most of our lives, and, and we have access to the word of God. And I think this hasn't always been the way it is. But yet we get to live in a day where 
where we can study your word and we can open your word and we can hear directly from you through your word. It's an amazing time that we live in. Help us to be good stewards with the word of God that is made available and accessible to us as followers of Jesus. Lord, help us to take this passage today and, and lay it over our hearts. Help us to be changed by the word of God that, that does surgery in our lives. Thank you that this passage has done surgery in my own life. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the ways that you can, can study the scriptures at home and is to take a passage of scripture like Ephesians 2.10 and to look that passage up in different translations or or um, different paraphrases. So things like the message isn't actual translation, it's a paraphrase, but you still can give you some, some added meaning. So, so when you're at home, you, you look at a verse, and sometimes you're thinking, you know, I love that verse. Go ahead and look that verse up in all the, the different translations. Now, you don't have to have all those translations at your home, because in today's day, with the internet and the, the power of certain websites, you can go to a, a website like Bible Gateway, and you can just plug in the verse, and you can say, show me the comparisons of, of other uh, translations, and they'll just all come up, and you can read it. And I want to do that with this particular verse because what it does is it, it kind of opens up uh, uh, added meaning. So if you were to do this and you see Ephesians 2.10 in the King James, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them feels a little bit different than, than that God prepared in advance for us to do, that we should walk in them. It's kind of a, it's got a, a new added meaning to it. If you look at the verse in the New Living Translation, it says, for we are God's masterpiece. Very different than workmanship. Well, it's not really different because the more you think about it, you're like, oh, to be a masterpiece is to be a, a workmanship. And so the, the words begin to take life. And this is just the different translators of the original language taking the, the original words and doing their best to translate them into the English language. And this is how you can get a broader understanding of the passage. I love what the message has to say. The message, which again is a paraphrase, not a translation, says, he creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work work he's gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. I love that. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I love that picture of work we had better been doing. The, 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 uh, I just like it. Okay, <laughs> sorry. No words came to my mind at that moment. New Life Translation says that we are his work. He has made us to belong to Christ Jesus so we can work for him. He planned that we should do this. All those subtle differences help us to, to begin to get a, a better understanding of this, this one passage of Scripture. But we're going to study it from the NIV. That's the passage that we use here at Grace. It's a passage that's under your seat. And, and the NIV says that it starts with these words. It starts with the words, for we are God's. So I sat down and I started to prepare this sermon and, and I, I start usually with the passage of scripture in front of me and begin to just type and, and study and, and, and read and, and I got to that and I thought to myself, this is really all we need to know. This is really all we need to know that, that we are God's. And if you really look at the whole of Scripture and, and you start to look at the language of Scripture, you begin to see that there's this, this picture of us being God's possession. That God actually having possession of us. And, and here's the challenge with that, that picture in most of our minds. To be God's possession for many of you, if you're honest, and I hope that you are being honest as you sit there, that's either odd or it's very unsettling. We don't want to belong to someone else. It feels like there's something wrong with that. But the reason it's unsettling for us is because we don't know the character of God. Because if you really knew that God is love... If you really knew that, that God is your 
father and he loves you beyond your, your ability to even comprehend your wildest imagination. And, and if you really knew that God cares for his possessions, the more we know of the character of God, the more we know of the love of God, the more being God's possession isn't scary or unsettling. It's incredibly comforting. God cares for the things he loves. God looks out for the things he loves. God, God empowers the things he loves. God has got all of these attributes of God and he, he, he sees who we are and, and he, we are his possession. He pours in. So 1 Corinthians tells us that, that we were bought with a price. We're not just his possession, but, but he went to these incredible lengths to make us his possession. He gave his son. His only begotten son, Jesus, he, he came, he died on the cross to allow us to be the possession of God. And so for us to remember, you are God's. This, was, this is something that we should all allow our hearts to, to comprehend. You are God's. So you should be encouraged because you're God's. You should be secure because you're God's. You should be strong. You should be courageous because you're God's. So that's the personal application. But what does this mean for Grace Community Church? What does this mean for us? And let me just break it down for you. First and foremost, this is God's church. Everything you see, everything you do, everything around you, the chair that you're sitting in, the, the stage that's up here, uh, us as is, is, is the, the co-workers within the church, this is God's church. Let me say it one more time. This is God's church. We used to have a, uh, an interim pastor here about, uh, I think, 11 or 12 years ago uh, by the name of Al Conley. And you should clap. Everybody knows who Al Conley was. He was cool. I, uh, I loved Al Conley. I miss Al Conley to this day. Al passed a while ago. Uh, but when Al was here, and some of you know exactly where I'm going because he said it so often, but he would stand right here on the stage, and he would stand behind the pulpit because he was much cooler than I am. But he would say, God is our senior pastor. Almost every Sunday, Al Coonley would say, God is our senior pastor, because Al knew this truth, that, that we are God's church, and we would do well to stop and remember and go back to that basic truth. This is God's church. But there's a, a kind of an irony in the fact that if you come to new member class and you sit through number, new member class, one of the things I'm going to uh, uh, push you towards is I want you to say, this is my church. So we talk about if you're on the streets, like the win for us if you're on the streets and, and you're talking to somebody and they say, hey, have you heard about that church at Marasa 994? I think it's called Grace. You say, oh yeah, that's my church. But you say it with excitement and you say like, I love that church. Yeah, I know all about that church. That's my church. But when you say that's my church, you're not really saying I own the place. And if you are saying that, then we have a problem. We'll have a sermon about that some other time. But, but you're not talking about possession. It's kind of like if you were to say, Michigan's my team. Which, by the way, fewer and fewer people are able to say, <laughs> driving me crazy. But when you say Michigan is my team, you're not talking about I own them. It's not a, a possession thing. It's a, it's a commitment, a loyalty, an excitement, a, a buying into. It's a belonging to. So we want you to say this is my church because we want you to feel like you belong here. We want you to feel like you're part of the family. We want you to feel like you're, you're excited about where we're going as a church and, and have all that going. But when you say it, it's different than when we say this is God's church. No, this really is God's church. It's not just that he's committed to us. No, we are God's possession. Everything you see, everything we are, this is God's church. But the passage goes on. It doesn't just say, for we are God's. It says, if you look at it, it says, for we are God's workmanship. 
workmanship. The word there in the Greek is the word poema, and, and it's where we get the word poem or poetry from. We are God's poetry. Isn't that an amazing thing? The other translations, if you were to look at all the different translations, you'll see that the, the uh, workmanship is, is translated as artwork, handiwork, masterpiece, and all of these variations start to give you more of a, a well-rounded definition. But the actual definition of poema is workmanship, an intentional, handcrafted, thoughtful, artistic work of a craftsman. Think about it for a minute. You are an intentional, handcrafted, thoughtful, artistic work of a craftsman. I'm sorry, Meg, but that's amazing. <laughs> there is no other word to describe what that means to you and I. You are God's, but you are God's poema. You are God's poem. You are God's artwork. It's an amazing thing to think that God was intentional. He, he handcrafted you. So, so David, before this was ever written, David wrote a, a psalm, and, and in his psalm, he, he, he knew this as, as who he was. So he wrote these words. He said, you created me in my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You see this picture of, of being intentional, handcrafted, thoughtful work of a craftsman. Now, I'm not a knitter, and I'm not sure that someone who knits is called a knitter. But what I do know is in order to knit, one has to put some forethought into it. Someone, someone has to think about it, that there's, a, there's an artistic, a skill level that, that comes with, with knitting a sweater. And if there isn't, it's not a very pretty sweater. But if you want to knit a nice sweater, and if you've ever seen somebody create a, I mean, it's a, it's a work of art. It's it's, it's a handcrafted, thoughtful thing. The truth that God is purposeful in making us should be very liberating to you and I. Because what it's saying is, you just need to be who you are. You just need to be exactly who you are. But the problem is we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to be somebody else, trying to be something else. We try to, we, we try to, to, to see other people or, or other things, and, we, and we're, we're always trying to say, I wish I were more like that. We have this thing we call gift envy. We see somebody do something really, really amazing in the kingdom of God or whatever, and we think, I want to I be like that. I wish I could sing like Mel. I wish I could. I wish I could. I wish I could. But the passage is saying, no, I, I already made you to be you, so, so let's work on being you. So sometimes I listen to great communicators, and they're really funny or super expressive. They stomp or something, I don't know. Get everybody fired up. They're brilliant. And I think, man, I need to be like that. And God leans over, and he whispers in my ear. He says, no, you just need to be Doug. You just need to be Doug. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. God is leaning over and he's whispering in every person in this room's ear, you just need to be you. I already handcrafted you. I already made you. I already made you exactly the way I want you to be. Would you just be the you I've created you to be? It's a powerful thing. It's a liberating thing for us. I keep looking at prudence because it's part of prudence's is mantra is just helping people to be who they are, like like. Being Prudence Cole is, that's what I think her license plate actually says, being PC, being Prudence Cole. She, she gets this. She teaches this to people. She teaches this to people in business. Like, like, God's already made you something special. What does it mean to be you? And here's the deal. God doesn't want us to settle. This isn't about being okay with everything in our lives. We talk all the time here about, about this idea that we are a mosaic striving to 
live like Jesus. And we also talk about the fact that none of us are there yet, which means we're continually growing. God wants me to become a better communicator. God wants me to pay attention to how other people teach and preach and to learn from that and to, to take the gifts and talents he's given me and become better and better at what I do. He wants me to, to grow in my understanding of scriptures. He wants me to become a better husband. He wants me to become a better father. It's not about being satisfied with who you are, but what, can I tell you this? He doesn't want me to be Andy Stanley because he's already got an Andy Stanley. He just wants me to be Doug Kempton. He doesn't want you to be anyone else except for who he's created you to be. And this is incredibly liberating if we understand this. But the question we're asking today is, so what does this have to do with Grace Community Church? Well, grace. Grace is God's workmanship. Grace is God's awesome creation. Grace Community Church is his poema. We are his poetry together. All we have to learn to do is be grace. And the truth of the matter is we have gotten ourselves in trouble and we will get ourselves in trouble if we say to ourselves, we want to be Kensington or we want to be Willow Creek or we want to be Saddleback or we want to be Woodside. And those are great churches, but we aren't called to be any of those churches. We're called to be Grace Community Church at Moross and I-94. And we need to figure out what does that mean? And we need to, to go after it without having this low corporate esteem, like self-esteem. You have low self-esteem and you want to be everything else. We've got to have this, this ability to realize that what God is doing here, the story that he's writing here is pretty amazing. And we just have to be the church that he's called us to be. And the question we can ask ourselves is, well, then who are we? What does it mean to be grace? What has he made us to be? And one of the ways we can do that is to look back and see how God has used us. Same with your life. You can look back and see where God has used you, where God has, has, has shown you that you have gifts and talents. And we can look forward and say, God, how are you trying to use us? And if you look back at grace, one of the things that becomes clear is, is we are a church and we will continue to be a church where people who are far from knowing who Jesus is can hang out with us and not feel judged or belittled. We want you to stay. We want you to hang out as long as it takes, and we don't want you to feel like we're telling you what you have to believe. So it's a place where people far from Jesus can hang out and come to a place where they eventually find their roots and they find their spiritual journey with God. I know, because I've heard the story so many times, this is a church of healing. People come to grace out of places where they were spiritually abused. And somehow they come into this place and they say, I can heal here. And they sit in the, the seats, some of them start way back in the back for, for weeks, months, and then they slowly move forward as God begins to bring healing into their life and really realizing that, that it's okay and God enters into that pain. So there's this, this place of, of, of emotional and spiritual healing that takes place here. We hear the story all the time. A lot of times people come to us and that's their story. And then as they become whole again, God sends them back out into their their old environment to have impact in their, in their old churches or in different churches. And that's good because that makes us ascending church and that's part of who we are and who we've always been. We are a church that doesn't want to do church inside of the walls. We have and continue to have an impact in our community and an impact around the world. We have missionaries all over the world doing amazing work. We are a ascending church. You guys all know I'm going to talk about that, but we're a mosaic that's part of what makes us unique. And, and I love somebody challenged me a few weeks ago that we're not the only mosaic. I understand that. But can I tell you, in the Christian world, it is rare. So it's not only, and it doesn't make us the only ones doing it, but what God is doing on this corner is he's called us to be a mosaic racially and 
and economically. And so what does that mean? You know what? One of the things it means is we don't get to pick a target market. Some churches get to say, this is who we're doing. Every, all of our programming is geared towards this particular race, this particular uh, age group, this particular uh, marital status with, with a certain number of kids. We're going to do everything geared towards that particular person. And God said, no, we don't get to do that at Grace because we're going to be a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. So you're going to have to vary what you're doing programming. You're going to have to be much more intentional about welcoming people from all walks of life, rich, poor, black, white, and all kinds of past spiritual experiences. We're an authentic church. The fact is, we know we're just a bunch of broken, redeemed people who are trying to lead. I'm, I'm no different. I'm no better. As the leader, you shouldn't be saying amen to that one. <laughs> Come on, lighten up a little bit. Amen. That guy is so screwed up. Amen, brother. The point is, we're broken. We're, re- we're just broken, redeemed leaders leading broken and redeemed pe- people. And that, what does that allow us to do? It allows us to just be authentic with our own junk and with our own struggles. So we're, a, we're an authentic church. That's the beauty of this church-wide study we're doing in January, the Church Without Curtains. So we're going to write a study where, where God is known and loved, where, where we can sit with one another and become loved and known. And we're going to be a church without pretense. We're just going to be honest about who we are. So we're an authentic church. Here's what I want you to know, and I'm still trying to figure out what does it mean to be Doug, right? I I know it a lot more now than I did 10 years ago. I know it way more now than I did 20 years ago, but I'm still on the journey of of really understanding what it means to Doug. You're still on the journey of figuring out what does it mean to be you, and so if that's true, the individual, and if individual uh, lessons apply to, to organizations, then Grace needs to understand we're still trying to figure out at some level who we are. Now we have more clarity than we used to have, but we're still in the, in the business of asking God, what are you trying to do with us? What are you trying to do through us? Who do you want us to be? How do you want us to move? That's part of even what we're doing as elders right now is really asking the question, like, like God, what are you up to? What do you, what do you want from us? And, and what does it mean to be Grace Community Church on the corner of Moross and I-94? I want to put that in front of you because I don't want you to be frustrated with the fact that you don't know the answer to everything that we're talking about today. The passage goes on, it says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand. We know from the scriptures that Jesus is the author of life. Everything that was made was made by him. All things that were made were made through Jesus. I mean, that's the scriptures. And so that's affirmed in in Ephesians 2.10. But what it says is that we are made through Jesus and we were made for good works, which God prepared beforehand. You are God's. You are God's poema. You are God's purposeful, handcrafted work of art. And you have been designed to do something. You have actually been designed and and put together in a thoughtful way to actually do something for the kingdom of God. You were designed for a particular good work. And the only way to understand this is to do a little bit of theology, a little bit of missiology, and and kind of explain the the difference between uh, a general call and a specific call. So here's what we need to know first. Every person who said yes to Jesus is called. Actually, Josh talked about it last week. But every person, every person, say that one more time, every person who said yes to Jesus is called. So calling is not something reserved for the professionals. It's not something reserved for the the people who are running nonprofits. It's not something reserved for the people on staff at a church. If you know Jesus, you're called. 
And here's the added part. Not only are you called, but you have a specific call and you have a general call. Everyone has these, these two elements to their calling. Now, the general call is that we are all called to be light of the world. You are the light of the world. We are all called, another way to say that is to advance the kingdom of God, to advance the, the rule and reign of Jesus in the world. That's the, the general call. Every Jesus-following church has that general call, that they are called to be light in the darkness, to advance the cause of God, right? So not only do you have a general call, but here's what you need to know. You also have a specific call. The passage is telling us that I made you to do something. No, I designed you perfectly to do something in particular to advance the kingdom of God, to be light in the world. You are designed with a plan and a purpose. Amen. The million-dollar question is, what, what are the good works that God's asked me to do? What's, what's the good works that God has prepared for me to do? I want to acknowledge something. I forgot to say this in the first service. I felt kind of bad. Um, this can be incredibly frustrating. And so if you're frustrated, I just want to, to recognize that it's okay. Because what you're saying is, I know Jesus, and, and I've been following Jesus. I just, I'm not sure what he wants me to do. I hear that all the time. Like, what are the good works God wants me to do? And here's what I would say to you. Is, I don't believe that God would design you for a plan and a purpose. I don't think that he would say, I made you in a, a particularly awesome way to do an awesome, ooh, I just said it twice in a row. Ooh. See, it just comes out, I'm sorry. I made you in a particular way to do a particular thing, and I'm going to hide it from you. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just, I'm just going to keep it from you. That's not God's heart. So my encouragement to you is pray. Ask God, what is, it, what is that thing you made me to do that's unique to me? What's the, the good works that you have for me to do? Because discovering that is going to be one of the most life-giving things that you do. This is why serve is an important part of our six essentials. Because when you serve, when you give your life away, you begin to discover, this is what God made me to do. This is the, the awesome part of, of being me. This is true for each one of us. God has a, a plan and a purpose in our lives. And we have to grow into it. And we have to, to learn what it is. That's what's going to give us joy. That's what's going to give us life. I have a friend, uh, Randy Reese, who says that when you discover this, you find out what grinds your coffee. Which I like that saying. I'm not sure it means anything to you, but I like it. So you find out what grinds your coffee. What gets you up, or as Bill Hybels would say, it's you figure out what your holy discontent is. This is where, where life is found. What does this, that's what it means for us as individuals, but what does it mean for us as a church? This is God's church. This is God's poema. He's, he's made us a poem. He's handcrafted us. He's put us together for a particular thing, and, and he has created us to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. So the question is, what are the good works that grace has prepared for us to do? I had this really um, surprising and fascinating week last week, way more than... Uh, normal, uh, I had to give people tours of the building, and I had to give them uh, a kind of a, a vision of the church. So it started even with the Josh and Josh guys and Jason coming into town and, and being able to travel with them and them asking questions like, well, tell me about grace and us walking through the building. And then I had some people I didn't expect that showed up at the church that wanted to know. I did a funding meeting off-site with some people, and I had to talk about uh, the church there. And so over and over throughout the week, I've been having these conversations about what it means to be grace. And I think God kind of did that on purpose because it reminded me of all the exciting things that God is doing around here. And, and if I need to be reminded, I guess you need to be reminded as, as well. But most of these, these conversations, I talked about the prayer initiative. 
Do you know that we have a thousand people who have committed to pray for grace every morning at 930? We have a thousand people who stop when their alarms go off at 930 in the morning every day of the week and they pray for grace. And I know those prayers are five seconds, 10 seconds, one minute. But when you stop and you say, God, would you please be with the leadership at Grace? Would you do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? Do you think God hears the prayers of a thousand people who are all praying at the same time for God to do more than we can ask or imagine? Of course he does. And I get excited talking about how that has the ability to change the fabric of this church, a thousand people. If you are not one of those people, take out your phone right now, set your alarm for 930 and, and pray with us. And guess what? If you're with people and your alarm goes up, it's just a great chance for you to say, hey, I usually pray for my church at 930. And turn off your alarm and, and in your mind say, God, be with grace. And if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. But it's a powerful thing. I get a chance to talk to him about the church-wide study that I just talked about, the church without curtains. And I believe this study is going to be a defining moment in the life of this church. I really do believe that. And so I get to talk about the vision of that, and and it's a great conversation. But the truth of the matter is, most of the time, the the tour that I'm giving is a physical tour that I'm actually walking around with people and showing them what's going around. And and it usually starts in the parking lot. So we pull up in the parking lot, and right away, you see this amazing building in our parking lot called Covenant Community Care. And and I get to say, let me tell you about Covenant. And I take them over there, and we walk in, and you see this world-class medical facility. And I don't say that lightly. It is an amazing place with, with world-class equipment. This is as good as it gets. It's, it's as good as any other doctor's office, but it's for the uninsured and underinsured. It's for the poor. But it doesn't feel like it's for the poor because they don't think of people as less than because they're poor. And so they offer this level of service that gives people this amazing sense of dignity. And, and so people who aren't even uninsured and underinsured will still go there and get their medical care. Why? Because these are world-class doctors and physicians and dentists who are giving world-class care with world-class equipment. It doesn't have anything to do with, with less than because they're poor. And we get to do all that in the name of Jesus. And that's the good work that God has called us to do on that corner. So we're, we're out in the parking lot, and I'm excited. And the more I do this, and the more I start to talk fast. You, know, you guys all know how I got that little problem. When I get excited, I talk fast. But, but then we're walking in the building, and all these, these families are walking in with their little kids, and they're walking into Upstreet for SOAR. And I get to tell them about this tutoring program where we have 300 mentors from Grace that sit with individual kids, teaching them how to read one-on-one mentoring, 300. 100 volunteers teaching kids how to read at or above grade level. So teaching a kid to read, what's that got to do with anything? Do you know that that can save a kid's life? You know, the number one reason why kids drop out of school is literacy. You know that the the odds of a kid getting into jail or even dying once they drop out of school is astronomical in the city of Detroit. We actually get to save kids' lives. And while while we're teaching them to read, you know, we get to tell them about Jesus, too. It is an amazing thing, but that's the good work that God prepared in advance for this church to do. And so we're walking in, and they've only gotten to the lobby, and I'm already geeked, and I'm I'm looking in the walls out there, and if you go out there today, you'll see all those pictures. Well, those are pictures of people who have been impacted by the ministry, by the good works that God has called us to do. And I think of, God, one of the, one of the stories I told this week is the story of, of Chancellor. And some of you know Chancellor, but Chancellor started playing in Eagle Sports, and he played for eight years. Every season we had, from flag football to soccer to baseball, to flag football to soccer to baseball, I mean, that guy was in every single season. And eventually he started volunteering at Grace. He used to work in the cafe all the time. And, and eventually he came to know Jesus. And, and then he started tutoring in the tutoring program, and he's about to graduate from the University of Michigan. I think that's what it's all about. 
The chancellor took advantage of the opportunities we put in front of him. We are not responsible for his success. But I can tell you that we helped him in finding his path to be able to, to find Jesus, to go to school, to do the things that he's going to do. So we walk in through the lobby, and I've talked about Chancellor, and I see a picture of a, a young boy by the, by the name of Raj, and we talked about Raj last week. Little Raj, who was a slave. A year and a half ago, he was a slave. Like, do you get that? Do we stop and even hear the stories that we're telling? He, he was owned by somebody. He was, he was used on the streets to sell stuff. He was somebody's slave. And we think to ourselves, slave is a thing of the past and it's still existing. But we get to partner with IJM and with guys like Jeremy that you met last week. And we get to rescue not just Raj, but over 100 kids in just the last year through that organization. That's the good work that we get to do. And Raj gets put in a place where he gets to hear about Jesus. And there's another picture out there. It's a little girl. Her name is Asia. Asia was trafficked by her mom and dad at the age of 12. Her family trafficked her at the age of 12, but groups like Courage Home have come alongside and pulled her off the street and given her a place where she can live, where she's not abused, where she's not oppressed, and they share the love of Christ with her, and she becomes whole, and she becomes an understanding that, that she's loved. That's the good work that God has called this church to do. Last week, we talked about a guy named Jamail. Jamail lives in a country where when you say yes to Jesus, you can go to jail. You say yes to Jesus, you could actually die in jail. It's a crime to say yes to Jesus, yet through our partnership in Malaga, through the media center and the, the work that they're doing, Jamal comes to know Jesus, and then he leads his family to Jesus. So we get this chance to work with the Malaga Media Center, actually establishing the Church of Jesus Christ in the country of Morocco where saying yes to Jesus means you might go to jail. That's the good work that God has called us to do. That's an amazing picture of us being allowed to step in the gap and to, to do justice around the world and here locally to, to help people to have the opportunity to know who they are in Christ. Here's the bottom line. We get to help people like Jamil know that they're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do a good work which God prepared in advance for him to do. This is like it, it goes on. We get to teach people who they are in Christ. That's the good work that God allows us to be a part of. As I walk through the building over the last week with all these different groups of people, I'm reminded of one of our new partnerships. We have this amazing opportunity to partner with, uh, with the House of Providence, who's doing an amazing work right here in the city of Detroit. And so rather than me tell you another story, I'm going to invite my friend Jaden up, and she's going to tell you Taylor's story. Hi, my name is Jaden, and I have been coming to Grace for about three years. I live in a home in Detroit with my brother and my mom. I want to tell you the story of a girl that's just like me in a lot of ways. She's about my age, and she grew up right around here. Her name is Taylor. She's a real girl, and this is her real story. I was born to a single teenage mom. My mom was never able to care for me well because of her own toxic relationships and drug addiction and I was removed permanently from her care when I was very young. I kept hoping that someone from my family, an aunt maybe, would come for me and want me to live with her so that I wouldn't have to go to foster care, but that never happened. I was so angry. I felt completely alone in the world, and I knew that I didn't belong anywhere. Every time I was in a new foster home, I would act out because of my anger, fear, and hurt. 
and even my caseworkers and the judge decided that I wasn't a good candidate for a family setting. I was instead put into an institutional setting, like an orphanage. It was not a home. I kept running away thinking anything must be better than where I was. By the age of 12, I was living out on the streets and doing whatever I needed to do in order to survive there. Sometimes the authorities would catch up with me and I would go into temporary shelters for other girls like me. I was alone and I knew that if nobody wanted me, I must be the problem. On my 14th birthday, I was again with the authorities. They didn't know what to do with me. Again, I was just a problem. They had heard about a new place called House of Providence and they told me that I could stay there. When I was brought to House of Providence, they welcomed me with open arms, gift bags, fried chicken, and a birthday cake. <laughs> I didn't even know how to respond. Nobody else had ever even mentioned my birthday. I was caught completely off guard. I was still cautious, though, because of my experiences. I was terrified, and I cried all the time. It took me days to settle in, but one day at a meeting with some of the workers, I admitted that I wasn't even tempted to run away, because House of Providence was the best place I had ever been in my life. I knew that the people there really cared about me. We have this opportunity uh, this morning, or I guess this afternoon, to uh, meet the uh, directors of Providence House and Jay and Maggie, so why don't you welcome them up to the stage. Come on up if you don't mind. Hey, while they're coming up, uh, I just want to, um, so when we tell a story like that, we have to keep it PG because we never know who's going to be in the room. Come on over. Uh, there's a point in that story where it says um, she was 12 years old, she was on the screen, she did whatever she had to do to survive. Um, I just want you to know um, the original story that was sent to us was much more graphic than that. Um, and I probably have said all I need to say for you to understand what this young girl had to go through to live on the street. It's, it's horrific. And we just can't say uh, in detail, but I don't think I need to at this point. You guys all know where I'm going with that. So um, let's start with what's going on with Taylor, like a little bit of an update, whatever you feel like we need to hear. Good morning. Um, this is Maggie, this is Jay, in case it wasn't perfectly clear. Um, happy to update you that she has been with us for about three months now, and um, she's progressing in every way. She hadn't been in school, um, refused school because of some learning disabilities, refused school for uh, behavioral things, anger, all sure. of that, and now she is in our on-campus school, and she is one of our best students. She's thriving. She is progressing through her, her schooling very, very well. She is now opening up in therapy. We usually try to take a long time before we really dive into the trauma narrative, and she is just headlong in it and wants to work through it and wants to do well. Um, she had a, a family member that is pretty toxic person step up and want to take her in, and she was moving toward that, and then after some time at House of Providence, she said in a meeting um, that she didn't think it was a good plan. She didn't want to go back to that environment and repeat things. That's cool. And uh, at 14, that's a pretty profound thing to come to and a statement to make. And uh, she actually told me about a week and a half ago in my office, um, wondered, did I think that there would ever be a family that really would want her? And uh, she is... Um, 
now opening up her heart and asking us to find her family. And that is a huge step for a kid to put themselves out there and be vulnerable again and ask, could you find me a family? So. Well, just the question alone breaks your heart. Is there a family? Is there a family that would love me? I mean, just think about the, the weight of that question. That's a powerful thing. So, Jay, maybe you could give us the, uh, just the vision of what Providence House really is, and thank you. Um, maybe, yeah. So, so we've heard a little of Taylor's story, but what's the bigger picture? What do you do? What's the elevator speech? Yeah, House of Providence is a, a therapeutic residential home for older teenage. This home's for girls between the ages of 12 and 18 that are just languishing in the foster care system. And uh, they're there uh, not by choices or things they've done, but they have been abandoned, abused, rejected, uh, and, and really nobody wants them. And uh, by the time you get to the age of 10, it's very hard to place a child in a home. And uh, so kids are placed into an institution, lockdown facilities, uh, pretty much like a jail, a shelter, and, uh, and, and, and there's no hope. Just as the state told Taylor, uh, you know, you're not fit for a family, which we know everybody's fit for a family. And, um, and so our goal is to therapeutically, uh, to be able to walk these young ladies through everything that they need spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, to be able to be everything that God's designed for them to become. And so uh, we walk with them and everything that we've done is created like biblical family. And so everything that we afford our children, we make sure every one of these young ladies are able to do that and succeed and become everything that God's designed for them to become. So one of the things you talked about in the first service that I thought was pretty impactful, there's, there's this opportunity for the church. Absolutely. Even though there's state funding, there's, the state is a part of what you do. How, how, how does that work? Yeah, through the state of Michigan. The state of Michigan, because in Michigan, we're the third worst in the nation. We're ranked 48th in our child welfare system. And, and, and the state, I mean, they're, to me, God bless them for doing what they're doing, but it wasn't their call or their job to do it. And they've opened the doors wide open for the local church to be able to be a part and to come alongside of them and to help. And so part of that process and, and walking through that is, is they're saying, hey, we want you as the church to help us to be the answer for these young men and for these young women. And so they've opened the door and they're literally begging the church, will you do your part? And so they've told us you can't force Jesus upon any of these, which we're like, we know we can't force Christ, but as we create the atmosphere, we create the place, we are watching these young ladies and giving their hearts to Christ and coming. And our goal is, um, you know, we can therapeutically and mentally and emotionally do all the things right. But at the end of the day, if these girls don't have a home, if they don't have a family, we failed. And, uh, and we as the church have that opportunity to say, well, maybe just as Mordecai raised Esther, and he says, I will raise her as my own daughter. We have the opportunity to say, Lord, where, where can we be that Mordecai? How can we raise her or him as our own son or our own daughter? Yeah, that's powerful. That's the good work. Amen. So um, we didn't get to do this first service either. Um, I'd like to hear a prayer request, but as you're telling us how to pray for you, um, I would love it if your family would come down and stand with us so we could pray for you and your family yeah. uh, because I think it's just a beautiful picture. Anyway, so if maybe sure. if you guys want to come down. I know you, you weren't expecting this. Are they still Grace. all over there? Just Nathaniel and Grace. Oh, that's all right. Come on down. Whoever's here. Jordan. I see a little person there. It's... So maybe you could just tell us why they're coming. How, how can we pray for you? How can Grace pray for the House of Providence. And by the way, before she says that, I just want to connect some dots. Uh, when Carrie left full-time here to go work somewhere to help young girls in 
Oh, she went to Providence House. So thanks for stealing Carrie. We're all, no, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> so. Um, so to pray for us, when you walk into um, families that have been bound for generations, um, it's frontline stuff. And so there's so much spiritual warfare. And so walking in that and just standing with us um, in that way is, is huge and it's intense. So um, that kind of prayer support is amazing. Intercessors praying for these girls, praying for their freedom, for their souls, and for their futures is, is probably the biggest way. And then wisdom as we move forward. And then just the future that God has for our next campus and um, ministering to boys next. And then we hope eventually to have... Um, teen moms who are in foster care. That's awesome. And so, just so you also know, I think there's five missing. Is yes. that right? Yes. Yeah, yep. somebody there just said it. Five? Yeah, five. Nursery, there's there's five who are in the kids' program. So, so, let's pray, if you don't mind praying with me. Lord, I, I thank you for, uh, Jay, I thank you for Maggie, I thank you for the Providence House, I thank you for this amazing family that has uh, stepped out there in faith and, and really are on the front lines, uh, doing front lines sort of ministry, and I do pray that you would protect them spiritually. I pray that you would you would ground them in, in the knowledge of your son, that they would be filled with your spirit, they would be able to, to fight the good fight. I pray that you would hold the enemy back, that you would put a hedge of protection around them and around this ministry, that their family would thrive and that they would have, have a great time together, that they would love these girls in a way that helps them to know uh, that their daddy loves them. And perfect love casts out all fear and imagine the fear that these girls live with every single day day and to just introduce them to the love of Christ that can free them from that. Lord, I pray that you give them great, uh, great understanding of how to do the good work that you have called them to do. I thank you for the inspiration they are to me, to this church, of just stepping into the gap where God has called them to step. You have made them to do this. It's very clear. So help them to be uh, successful. Help them to be impactful in the work that they get to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's thank them for being here. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming up. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Man, I just want to keep saying that's amazing. That's awesome. It is what it is, right? That's the good work that God allows us to do. That's the good work that we get to partner with, and that's what really what impact is all about. So I love the way the message, which is a paraphrase, wraps up Ephesians 2.10. says, and I read it for you earlier, but it says the good work he's gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. I love those words, better be doing, not because if I don't do it, God's going to strike me dead. Not because it's some kind of edict and some kind of authoritative, you have to do it, but because if we do what God has called us to do, that's what's going to allow us to advance the kingdom in a way that, that really takes it forward. If we do what we're designed to do, we're going to be much more efficient in what we do. And the fact of the matter is, when you do what God has created you to do, that's the place of joy. That's the place where, where we have, have this, this life in what we do. God made you to do something, and when you're doing it, you have life and you have joy in the process, better be doing it because that's what you're designed to do. But the problem is, sometimes we think that the good work God is calling us to do is a burden. And we miss the fact that it's an enormous privilege. The work that, that Maggie and Jay are called to do, it's not easy work. 
And I would guess that somewhere in the early years when they began to think about it, they had to ask the question, is this going to be too hard or, is, or what? And they somewhere along the way came to the understanding that this is not a burden, this is a privilege. I wouldn't want to do anything else, even though it's hard. This is something that took me 30 years to understand. When I was 17 years old, I was called to be a pastor. I remember it clearly. I remember what was going on. I remember what I knew God wanted me to do. But I thought it was a burden. And I'm not saying this to hurt your feelings, but the fact of the matter is I didn't really like church people. I like you guys. I love you guys. I love this church, and I love the people God has given me a chance to, to, to do, do this journey with. But I didn't like church people, and I really didn't like religion. I'd grown up with church people, and I'd grown up with religion, and the thought of spending the rest of my life as a pastor doing that just seemed like an incredible burden to me, so I ran for 30 years. I was 47 years old, and Paul Source passed away, and those of you who knew Paul Source, he was an amazing man. He was a, a great friend of mine, and he died in the line of duty, and we had his funeral right here in this room, and I stood on this stage and, and stood over his funeral, officiated his funeral, and that was the day that I realized it's not a burden, it's a privilege. What God has called me to do, the good works that God has called me to do, it's not a burden, it's a privilege. I get to walk with people through the best days of their lives and the worst days of their lives. I get to be a part of weddings, I get to be a part of funerals. I'm going to do a funeral this afternoon. It is an incredible privilege to, to serve a family in their deepest grief. It's a privilege to, to dedicate your babies. It's a privilege to stand in the baptism tank and, and baptize. And the truth of the matter is I'm 52 years old and I'm now discovering that this is the most life-giving thing that I do. That if I do the thing that God created me to do, it's the good work he has placed before me. It's not a burden, it's a privilege. And my encouragement to you is when you feel that calling, when you feel that, that nudge to do something, I guarantee you God is going to put you in a place where it feels really, really risky. But it's not a burden, it's a privilege. The stories that we've shared, all of this, these are the, the opportunities that God has given us to be this church on this corner. These are the stories of life change that are the good works that God has prepared for us to do. This impact campaign that, that really comes to a head today with the offering that we're about to have, we've, we've called it the power of one. The power of this church starts with each one of you. It starts with you giving in the way that God has called you to give. And that's just not a financial thing. That's a physical thing as well. You see, when we understand Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do a good work which he prepared in advance for us to do, when we understand that passage and we begin as individuals to live into that passage, then and only then are we really going to be the church that God has called us to be, that we are, are each moving in the direction and doing the thing that God has called us to do. This is what Paul talks about when he talks about being the, the body of Christ. We each have a different function. We just have a different part to play. But together we become more and more powerful as a church and have more and more impact as a church. It starts with each one of us. It starts with each one of us giving what God is calling us to give. This is a big day. Big day each year when we take up this offering. God has called us to raise $300,000 and give it all away. Churches don't raise $300,000 and give it all away. We're going to raise $300,000 and we're going to give it to ministry partners so that they can continue to do the good work. We're going to be in partnership with them doing the good work God has created us to do. I had this amazing interaction with a woman on Friday. Actually, the band wants to come down 
Um, that would be great. Ushers, if you want to get ready to take offering as I'm telling the story, that's great. Uh, but a woman came in my office this week, and uh, she had made an appointment, and I was really busy. Um, but she got me at a good moment, and I could sit down with her. She said, can I come in your office and talk? I'm like, sure. And she walks in my office, and she said, I want to give you a house. I'm like, I don't really need a house. <laughs> she said, no, I, I have a bunch of rental properties, and I pray over all of my rental properties. And as I was praying over this rental property, I said, God, what do you want me to do with this property? And she said, I had a picture in my mind of impact. I saw the logo, and I heard God say, I want you to give your house to impact. And so she gave us her house. She walked in the door on a Friday afternoon, unsolicited, and she gave us her house. I'm telling you, this is immeasurably more. I had no way of, of having any idea that that was going to happen. Can I tell you, it was one of the most encouraging moments I've had as a leader. Crazy, like, like, God, you're doing some stuff. I couldn't even orchestrate something like that. She gave us that. Now, this woman isn't rich. She didn't just, this, it's an amazing sacrifice for her to do this, but she just walked in the office and she said, here, God told me to give you my house. How cool is that? How awesome and how amazing is that? I can't help it. I'll get over that word another time. So here's the, here's the way this goes. Some of you came with your envelope filled out, and that's great. Some of you know exactly what God is calling you to give. Some of you have written a check. That's great. Some of you are going to make a pledge. That's great. We need to know. We need to know because we add it all up. And that's how we know how much money to give to our ministry partner. So if you're going to give in the coming year, even if you gave last year, don't just assume, well, I'm just going to keep giving so you don't need to know. We need to know because we'll sit in the back and we will literally add it up. And here's the other thing I want to tell you. If you're not ready, that's okay. It's okay. Just write a little note on here that says, I'm planning on giving, but I'm not sure how much yet, and write your name so that we know that God's still at work, that you haven't heard yet what God wants you to give. I want to encourage you. You know, Meg and I have prayed over the envelope, and, and we felt like God said we want you to give double what you gave last year to Impact. So that's what we're going to do. Would you just pray and give what God calls you to give? Here's a little more uh, business talk, which doesn't help, I know. But um, if you want the money that you're going to give to go to Impact, it has to be in one of these envelopes. So in your bulletin are these envelopes. Anything else that you put in there, whether it's in the other envelopes or loose money, that will go to the general fund. So this offering is our normal tithes and offering, and it's also the impact offering. So you'll have to help us to know which you intended your offering to be. But we're going to raise $300,000. And we're going to give $300,000 away. Let me pray for you as the ushers come down and we get ready to take this offering. Lord, here's my prayer. I pray that we would have hearts of celebration. I think about my friend who came in Friday, and I love her exuberance anyway. She's always just a, a <laughs> she's always such a joyful person, but, but I've never seen that much joy in a gift. I mean, she was literally laughing. She was giddy. Excuse me. To see her sitting there so excited about giving us this house, it was so cool. And I just thought, Lord, that's what you want from all of us. It was a picture of a joyful giver. Help us to be joyful. I pray that as we give this offering so that we can continue to do the good works that you've called us to do, I pray that we would have hearts of celebration, hearts of joy. I pray that as, as Dre sings, that we would be drawn into the words of this song, that we would stand, that we would celebrate, that we would participate what is an amazing privilege of partnering with the living God to do kingdom work. 
Thank you for this church. This is a great church. This is an awesome church to be a part of. Bless us and allow us to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.